There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Roper Report podcast. You are joining us mere hours after the announcement that the EFL have voted in favour of curtailing the Skybet League One season and thus, of course, condemning Sunderland to finish outside the top 50 teams in English football for the first time in the club's illustrious 141-year history. Yeah, so if you want to continue to listen to this scintillating barrel of laughs, which no doubt will transpire Based on this topic, then we've assembled a panel to talk about this monumental mismanagement of Sunderland AFC, who are, of course, now looking forward to a third consecutive season in League One. I'm your host, Alex, and joining me this evening is Phil Smith from the Sunderland Echo. How are you doing, Phil? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. We're also joined by Dave Rose from the Red and White Army. How are you doing, Dave? Good, thanks, under the circumstances, I suppose. Uh, as, as good as you're getting. Exactly. And finally, we have another roker up, another... Not Roker Reporter, Roker... Re- well, yeah, Roker Reporter, John Stacey. How are you doing, John? Yeah, not bad, Alex. Thanks for that weird introduction. That was yeah, I, I, I tried to do something witty with that, but as you can clearly tell, I failed quite miserably. <laughs> Obviously, the hot topic, which is going to underpin everything we talk about for the rest of today, is the fact that the season has come to an abrupt end, a premature one. Was it overall a fair decision? We'll start with you, John. What did you make of it? Um, I think the the most unfair part about it was the whole uh, back and forth delay, kind of sat in limbo, not sure what's happening, lots of hope here and there, lots of conjecture about what might happen, what couldn't happen, what could happen, etc. But ultimately, I think when I've had half an hour, an hour or so to think about it this evening, I think to be fair, when you think about our form across the season I guess you've kind of got to go with kind of fairness beyond if you're completing a season now as it is and and what's happened and how we've ended up you know I couldn't see us pulling up trees and if we had a chance to play the rest of the season if I'm if I'm if I'm completely honest so yes I think up until today I was kind of clinging on thinking well if it does start again you never know we might have like an epic sort of great escape kind of style uh, clambering up the leagues rather than down but just looking at the team looking at the way we've been playing and the players some of the players looking to leave etc I just couldn't see it happening couldn't see us getting getting out of it so all that said and done I think personally from a from personal opinion you know without thinking about next season without thinking about what's happening in the near future I think the decision that that's been made pretty fair overall. Certainly, there's a case to be made that the whole back and forth that the teams in the in the bottom two divisions of the the EFL have 
have had to experience. It hasn't been particularly brilliant, but I suppose as well, you could maybe ask some questions about um, whether or not it's fair, maybe to play a bit devil's advocate with you, John. If you look at some of the teams, maybe in League One, I mean, overall, I would say the vast majority on the face of it do seem to have a fairly fair resolution from the points per game table. Honestly, I wanted to strip it all back and it'd be rated on, you know, biggest club or biggest following or something and yeah. get flying up. But I just think, you know, the, the ups and downs and the the seesaws and who gets what and what the point points per game was going to be, whether it's weighted, non-weighted and all that, I think it's all a bit of a moot point personally. I think that um, there's metrics that you can use left, right and centre and there's science behind it left, right and centre. Um, from a Sunderland point of view, yeah, I think it's a fair decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have a question about perhaps some of the other teams in the divisions. I mean, obviously, Sunderland, I would say, and I, I would I would echo John's sentiments, I think it is fair, given our performances across the season, that the PPG does reflect that, I think, quite accurately. What about, say, your teams like Wickham, who had a very good start of the season but fell away, or, say, Tranmere, who had a poor season in the main, and then got some momentum and sort of pushed back up the table? Is it perhaps a little bit unfair from them? I think... It, it, it possibly is because the points per game thing doesn't take into account form or last minute surges of uh, runs of games where you're going to win in streak and and I think every fan hopes they're going to do that don't they I mean we're all optimists at heart even Sunderland fans you think you know maybe you can turn it around and obviously the, the points per game while the logic to it it takes away that unpredictability of sport uh, but we are where we are and obviously it's clubs have voted the way they have uh, for whatever reason they've done that and I guess there'll be a bit of self-interest for all clubs including Sunderland how they've voted on that uh, we've got to go with the majority I think uh, a lot of Sunderland fans are gutted that we haven't had that chance to try to finish with a flourish and, and go promotion either by the road or Matty got getting into the playoffs but at the same time I sort of think we, we are where we are I, I'm not sure we deserve to go out go up. and also I think when you're getting out of this league you want to be doing it with a bit of swagger uh, or at least with a bit more purpose befitting of the club our size anyway because the championship is a bigger step up from league one than the premier league is from the championship you've got to go go all guns blazing if you're going to if you're not going to just drop back down again mm-hmm. no absolutely we have a question for you phil um obviously with regards to the nature of how this has all unfolded we understand that the Sutherland ceo jim rodwell spoke with the echo recently about his decisions to end the season could you give us some um some possible insights into how exactly that went yeah well, i mean i think to be fair, Sunderland's stance has been pretty clear for a little while, hasn't it? That they wanted to play on. Um, obviously, there's self-interest in there, as has been with every football club who've kind of been weighing up what to do next. But I think Sunderland as well, and, and Jim Rodwell kind of expressed, and I think I've felt all the way along that, you know, if the Championship in the Premier League are getting back to playing, then League One should be doing everything they can do to do as well. Um, because ultimately, if you set the precedent that you're not going to play kind of behind closed doors, then the next question is, when will next season start? It could be quite a long time before we're looking at that if that's the precedent you set. But I think I think the division, as we've seen in the last few weeks, has been pretty divided. You've got the kind of clubs, the slightly bigger clubs who have reasons why they want to play on, and then the slightly smaller clubs who the you know the costs of testing um, were going to be an absolutely huge issue. So I think in terms of the process itself, I think Sunderland and the clubs who want to play on, I think probably the main frustration has been that by the time we finally got round to holding the vote today there was no way the League One season could resume anyway because the AFL had already set a deadline for July the 31st and they'd already said that it would take around 50 days to finish the season. So, you know, even if clubs had voted to resume the season today, it wouldn't have been possible to do it. 
Um, so I think that's probably where the main frustration lies is that we got to a point where the votes seemed a bit immaterial, really. Um, and I think that's a bigger issue than potentially the, the points per game. But I just, you know, from, from my own perspective, I, I completely agree with the fact that I think had Sunderland, you know, got another win somewhere down the line and we're going up second on points per game, yeah, it would be exciting looking ahead to going into the championship, but there'd be a lot of concern there as well. And I don't feel Sunderland are one of the clubs who've been massively hard done by, to be honest, by the points per game. Tramway certainly have been. I think you could put Peterborough in that category as well, but I can't really hand on heart say that I think Sunderland deserved it or that I would be overly optimistic about them going up to the championship at the moment. No, and I think that comes back somewhat to what Dave said about going up with a bit of swagger. Mm. I mean, certainly the last time Sunderland went up through the back door back in 1990 when they obviously lost to Swindon in the final, but then because of Swindon's financial irregularities, the Sunderland got up by default. I think it would feel like an even more watered-down version of that, and there would perhaps then be a concern that if Sunderland are going up through you know, such peculiar, um, unorthodox circumstances in which they don't really prove their credentials as much as they would in a conventional season, that perhaps they wouldn't be as well suited to the championship. So that perhaps combines a bit of what you've both said there, Dave and Phil. I think that is the case, definitely. And uh, smiled a bit, uh, remembering the old Swindon thing as well. And uh, we wouldn't have had the advantage of it uh, undoing the mags a little bit uh, and kissing them as well this time around. Yeah. That's, uh, but yeah, I think, um, yes, I think it would have been strange. Um, I think now we're put out of our misery and know where we stand. If our owners are still trying to sell the club, maybe uh, it allows for some movement there because at least um, there, there isn't those unknowns now on that front. So may, maybe there's um, maybe it'll be a blessing in disguise and that get things moving a little bit. Who knows? Yeah, hopefully. Phil, do we know what proposal the club submitted to the EFL to resume the season? Well, it, there, there, were, there were only two kind of options on the table. One was just to play on behind closed doors as the championship were doing. And then the alternative was kind of what to do in the event of the season being finished. So the only alternative to what's happened, which was points per game in the end, was this Tramia Rovers proposal, which was that um, a margin of error would be applied. So essentially what they've done is gone past the last three seasons and compared what tally point uh, teams have at this stage of the season compared at the end. The upshot of that would have been, surprise, surprise, they would have survived um, and there would have only been two teams gone down. But it also, you know, it also would have meant that Sunderland would theoretically have been invited um, to take part in an extended playoff position. But of course, there was never going to be the support in League One for that because the teams who currently knew they were going to be in the playoffs on a points per game system are never going to vote for that because why would you reduce your chances of promotion from one in four to one in seven or eight? So... Unfortunately, it was one of those. Tranmere obviously felt, you know, they had to fight for their fans and what have you. But um, I'm sure Sunderland would have supported that. But it was, I don't think it was ever really going to get the numbers. So when it came down to it, it was merely a case of play on or curtail it. And unfortunately, playing on, I think they would have lost the vote three weeks ago, but it would have been a lot closer than it was today, just because everybody could look at the calendar and just see that this didn't work. There was, there was no way League One was coming back. No, no. I think the longer that we've had to leave it, like you said there, Phil, the, the least the less feasible or sustainable it becomes for the average League One club. I mean, you know, Sunderland living off the last of its Premier League money might be one of those in the privileged position where we could say, you know, yeah, we can play out these fixtures, but ultimately you look at clubs like Gillingham and, you know, had they have had to maybe field some more games behind closed doors with no revenue, it just wasn't going to be possible. What you say there, Phil, brings me to another question about obviously teams voting in favour of themselves. I think it incurs a bit of a moral issue. I mean, a number of chairman and chief executives, ours included, suggested that some of the clubs perhaps detected some moral 
moral quandaries regarding the resuming of the season, depending on where the position where it was in the table. Is there a case to be made, maybe, that... Um, uh, we'll go to you here, John. We've not heard from you in a while. Should we support... Yeah. <laughs> um, is there possibly a case to be made that the decision to vote should have been taken away from the clubs and left in the hands of the EFL, or should that element of democracy have been retained despite the votes probably being fueled by just personal preference? That's a tricky one, that. That's a really tricky one. That's Um, why I gave you it. (laughs) um, My first initial spur thought without even having a a deep think was that, yeah, maybe it should have been taken away from people who are going to have self-interest and have the moral quandary and just have that taken away. Um, so that a decision is made based on kind of a neutral person or some someone without a personal opinion towards it. I guess then the secondary thought of it is that, you know, we're supposedly living in a d- democratic world. We're supposedly living in a world where people should all be given a chance to have their say. Um, and in that, you know, without, without getting too political, you know, every league should have a say. Every club and every league should have a say about every single decision. And that's why all the chairman and CAOs are brought into most decisions. They have regular meetings with the, with the league and things like that. And obviously, you know, quite a lot of the listeners will have lived through times where they didn't get a say. And it was just kind of um, the league dictated what happened when. And it was all about money and it was all about different situations where the clubs were shafted, for want of a better word. And it was a case of, I guess going back to the start then really of what I've just said and said, you know, well, everybody should look after their own interests. They should be thinking about how they can keep the club running and and make a decision based on that, um, especially if they're mid-table or, you know, they, they've got nothing to play for and they can't keep the, the they can't keep can't keep running as a club with um, playing behind closed doors for no reason, you know, so, um, or to help other people to potentially get promoted. It's, um, yeah, without giving really much of an answer there, um, that's, basically my thoughts <laughs> I think that I think that you know maybe from a person yeah yeah I think from a from a from a human perspective this is in, this has been the right decision the right process from a um, making it easier and quicker and taking the moral quandaries out of it for people to make those decisions yeah I think you know the decision would have been made a month ago surely if, if it was just somebody making a decision based on whatever they think because they don't have a vested interest in any particular club so you know maybe selfishly um purely because the worst part about this is being in limbo for me um i'd have liked it to have been decided ages ago by somebody just to say look all of you lot shut up this is what's happening (laughs) so i think certainly in hindsight it would remove a lot of the complications we've had Mm -hmm. what do you think dave anything you agree with or disagree with there yeah, I think there's there's a lot of complexities with running the league, um, especially the EFL, uh, the sheer number of clubs and the sheer variation in the size of clubs. And uh, the way it's set up is obviously the, they have the rules at the start of the of each season, the rules of competition. Um, I think if anyone had been dictatorial around it, I think, uh, well, first of all, I just don't think it's possible, but they would have been setting themselves up for lots of legal challenges. So as painful as the process might have been, uh, I do feel a bit for the EFL. Um, it's a difficult position to be in, I think, and obviously unprecedented as well. You know, um, it's we've never never seen this before. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose as well. I mean, if I was to maybe answer my own question when I look at it, I'm only really just thinking this now. But if the teams aren't voting for themselves, then what are they actually voting for? I mean, you know, maybe the the knee jerk response might be the voting for the league to be fair, but then also. There's only so much the form can really tell you is fair. I mean, all you have to do is look at Sunderland's, you know, three or four great escapes towards the end of their stay in the Premier League. You know, 
if 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 the season had ended three quarters of the way in because of a global pandemic, then we would have been bottom every time, wouldn't we? But then obviously at the end of those seasons, when they had played out, we'd finish 16th with 38 points without mm-hmm. fail. So, you know, really... It's, it, and also, like, if you look at uh, how it's been framed as well, a bit like, well, it's 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 a sport and uh, results shouldn't be decided in a boardroom. And, of course, we all agree with that general principle. But uh, I'm not so sure we would have been putting those sound bites out if we were top of the league clear and it benefited us the season ended. No, well, that's it, isn't it? I don't think there'd be many... I don't think there'd be many different noises being made if Sunderland, for example, let's say they'd beaten Bolton those two times and there's... Uh, beat Fleetwood away that one time, and then we've got suddenly we've got what? What's that going to be? Six more points? Yeah, yeah, six more points. I think yeah. unless, unless my maths has failed me, no, it hasn't. Thank God. But yeah, so see, you got six more points, and all of a sudden, you know, the, you're one of the two teams that's well, you're one of the three teams. Sorry, that's going up. Well, no, one of the two that's going up. That's how League One works. Yeah, all, all of a sudden, that's a whole that's a whole different situation, isn't it? You know, case in point, if if we benefit, then I don't think we'll be hearing an awful lot. I think you might have had two or three, maybe four clubs within that moral quandary bracket where they can probably sustain the club regardless. They're not bothered about how it ends. So they're probably thinking, right, well, what's fair for the rest? You know, the people who are having having a problem, having an issue, either relegation or promotion battle. And they're probably thinking, how should I vote? Because it doesn't really matter to me which way it goes. I can play the rest of the games. But this is League One. This isn't the Premier League. This isn't people with, with massive bank accounts. So they are probably few and far between those that had a moral quandary because I can pretty much guarantee that out of the the 24 clubs you've got probably up to upwards of 20 almost 20 that just are definitely looking out for themselves 23 actually with, with no berry um mm-hmm. but yeah it's the case it was 23 wasn't it even my maths is playing up now isn't it yeah <laughs> um but yeah just the other point there you know about um kind of uh, the you know playing the game and, and and versus a boardroom again it's just kind of like it's just making me go back to the question you just asked me and just think maybe we should have just played on and everybody should have played because Dave's got me thinking of nostalgia and I don't want someone to make the decision for me anymore so <laughs> yeah it's all it, it's like that isn't it it's almost you don't want I think as David initially said there it, it would it would have been a lot less politically convenient for the EFL to have just made the decision even if that decision had been the most agreeable one overall because ultimately the clubs who you know would be the ones who don't benefit from that if say for example the EFL went right PPG table that's sorted everyone shut up that's what we're doing then obviously Tranmere would immediately be up in arms you know there'd be a there'd be a real tirade against the EFL because given the circumstances form is probably the, the most egalitarian thing you, you can you can decide on but ultimately it you know it isn't it isn't the be all and end all as we've seen but anyway speaking of the the EFL's decision making it isn't just the case that it's the lower divisions necessarily that are struggling to have reached these conclusions I mean the German third division for example the 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 dry Liga was able to resume and teams were and are playing out their remaining games. So I'll go to you, Phil, for this one, because you obviously spoke about it previously. But Emma, why do you think the EFL never entertained the idea of restarting League One earlier? Like why? What? I mean, obviously, it was a frustration for the clubs that the process was drawn out to the point where only one of the two options became valid realistically as of today. But what do you think was all the yumming and ahhing? What was, from your perspective, what was taking the time? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think the reason why a restart was always unlikely was because I think the main issue, to be honest, from League One's clubs' perspectives was financial rather than necessarily than health and safety. 
Mm -hmm. um, the EFL have put in pretty comprehensive protocols for getting people back to the training grounds, which championship clubs have adopted. So I think that was a hurdle that had sort of half been cleared. I, I think it was a case of finances, finances from being, playing behind closed doors and also finances of testing. The cost of testing was an absolutely massive issue. I can't stress this enough. Um, it was very, very, very difficult to sell to teams in mid-table with little to play for or teams that don't have a huge kind of income that they should be shelling out to fin on testing to finish the season. And without testing, you can't get the players back into training. And if you can't get the players back into training, then you're at least three, four weeks away from resuming. So mm -hmm. that was the main reason, really. And nobody was really able to come up with a with a fair solution for, for how these tests should be paid. Initially, the AFL said they would pay for it from central funds. But then clubs turned around and said, well, hang on, we're going to need that money in two, three months' time when we're not getting season card revenue um, because, you know, we, we're not playing. So that was the kind of the key issue. And in terms of delay, I, I think it was, you know, kind of alluded to before, and I think it's absolutely right. I think the AFL have done this process deliberately so at the end they can turn around to clubs and say everyone has had the opportunity to put their views forward, to put proposals forward, to have their say on what happens next. And it's been democratically voted on by all clubs because if you do that, then it significantly reduces the chances of a club being able to have a successful legal action against you afterwards. That's more my view than anything else, but I do think that's the main reason why the, the kind of the voting process has been so drawn out because they can now turn around and say, well, everyone's had a chance to put their views forward. Um, but yeah, the, the, fundamentally, the difference between the championship and the and the, and League One was was the cost of testing. That was the the single biggest issue and the one that nobody could get kind of get round. Mm. I'm guessing then. I mean, just I mean, I'm, I could probably read between the lines from what you've said, but you know, let's say that the EFL had just said, right, you do have to restart. You know, everyone's got to play. I'm guessing that financially would have been catastrophic for the vast majority of teams in the league Sunderland are in. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it, to make a judgment on individual clubs' financial situation without without kind of seeing their books or what have you. But I think this was one of kind of the key debates that was going on for a while as well, because the costs of playing behind closed doors were quite easy to assess because people could work out how much it would cost to to put the tests in place, how much they would lose from not having support or revenue, so season card refunds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm -hmm. But what nobody ever has been able to really get the bottom of is will there be a rebate to the broadcasters? Um, that because that you know clubs could have to pay money back um, to Sky and and, the, and all the other broadcasters. So I think there's still some pretty major financial implications potentially coming down the track, um, regardless of the decision not to resume. But I don't think the AFL were ever going to take the stance that um, that they would force a resumption because all the way through, you know, and a lot of managers, chief executives, chairmen have raised similar points to the ones we have now, which is to say. Why doesn't the AFL just make a decision? Why doesn't it appoint someone to make a decision? Well, the AFL's response from day one, rightly or wrongly, from Chairman Rick Parry and other board members has been, well, the clubs are the AFL. The AFL exists solely for the clubs. The clubs, you know, do make up the AFL and therefore they were always insistent it would have to be the club's decision. So they would never have imposed a, a restart when, as was pretty clear from early on in League One, the case, you know, the, the numbers just weren't there to, to get back playing. No, definitely not. I think when we had Kieran Maguire on the podcast, he told us about the, the chasm in revenue between Sunderland and virtually everybody else in the division, the 22 teams. So I think maybe, you know, it would have been very selfish from our perspective, perhaps, to think, right, well, a restart would be fine for Sunderland, possibly, maybe. But then for everybody else, categorically, no. But I think that's probably a good time to move on, speaking of Sunderland. Um so, obviously, I think now would be a good time to talk about the Sunderland season then, because it has obviously officially come to an end. It's done. We're not playing any more of League One football in the 2019-20 season. It is done. 
And obviously it's going to be done on a very sour, disappointing note if you're a Sunderland fan. So I suppose the question I'm going to ask, and I'm going to start with you, John, is who takes the blame for Sunderland finishing in what is now their lowest position in the club's history, which, of course, topped last season. And then that, of course, topped the season, well, matched the season before. So, yeah, who do you think is to blame? Ooh, why do you keep giving me these? Um, I, I think. I mean, surely this one's a bit easier than the last one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's. Um, I think the general consensus, the general sort of easy answer, is that the owners, you know, Charlie Stewart and the guys that are in charge, have been majorly responsible. The way they've run the club, the way the the transfer has been made. I know that they'll have reasons. I mean, from a business point of view and from a playing the game point of view, there's always a reason why you make these decisions. Hopefully. Um, but it's a case of they, the book stops with them. They've said it themselves in the pods. They're in charge. The book stops with them. They want to be successful and they want the success to be from the work that they've done. And ultimately, we haven't been successful. So, um, yeah, the responsibility lies with them. I think there's obviously um, there's obviously a little bit of form. But who do you blame for form? You can't blame the players or can you blame the players? There's all that question about, you know, career-minded players who aren't necessarily out for the team and how we've had bad eggs in the past and groups of players that aren't really playing for the team. Team selections, managers, and did should we have got rid of Jack Ross? Should we have not get it? There's loads of questions there. But yeah, succinct answer for you. It's it, the book stops with the with the owners, obviously, because it has to be. Um, they've said that from the start themselves. I can't. I don't. I don't like to lay blame on anyone for anything. Really, I'm a nice guy underneath all of this. But really, it's all John McLaughlin's fault. Well, that's that. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's go to you now, Dave. So, with obviously. What John's touching on there with performances, I mean, naturally, you know, no matter, you know, I mean, I mean, yeah, you can obviously go to the hierarchy like John has right at the top. But the fact of the matter is, is that Stuart Donald and Charlie Methven aren't kicking the ball on the pitch. And to a certain extent, you know, you've got to look at the players and think where your performance is good enough. Where have you seen the weaknesses in the team this season? Well, going back to your original question, if I'm, if I'm here, whose fault is it? I think it's the band's fault. Right. I am See? joking. <laughs> well, I, I thought I thought as much, but I was just wondering how many seconds you'd leave that to hang. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a yeah daft, the fans, the you, the fan listening, you are to blame. <laughs> no, I, I think um, that there was times last season where you felt like a lot of the squad were playing for the shirt for a period of time. Uh, obviously, it petered out and didn't end the season well, but um, I remember in the first half of the season, the bar was really low, of course, from seasons previous to that, with all the various mercenary players and substandard performances from individuals and from the team. So to see a team fighting a little bit in previous season, you thought, oh, we might be onto something here. This season, barring the odd little surge, it's just been awful. Um, and I think I agree that the book stops with the owners, and I'm sure the owners themselves would, would agree that the book stops with them. So ultimately, I think the recruitment's been underwhelming, uh, to be kind, really. And I also think it's easy to forget the huge distraction of their potential takeovers. Um, I think took the eye off the ball in terms of proper preparation for the season. I think that's a major factor. And it's it's unforgivable, really, when you look at um, the last comparable club to us who had benefit of some parachute payments in this league was back in, um, I think it was 2013-14 season when Wolves went up. So they had parachute payments. They bounced uh, back up the won the league with record points total. They had an average gate of 20,000. Um, it was the first time they've been in the third tier since the late 80s. There's lots of similarities there, apart from the going up a bit. Yeah. Uh, so they romped the league because they wanted a 
you know, reinvest if they want to again get back up there. And obviously they had the, the parachute be able to do that. And I just think um, the fact that we've had two seasons with such greater income than anyone else, such big gates than anyone else, arguably should have had much more ambition than the vast majority of the other clubs. Uh, it feels criminal that we have that, that we're still here, regardless of how the season's ended. Yeah, that's yeah. There's there's no other way of looking at it, Dave. That's three seasons in League One, and again, I mean, you draw your comparison. The most, I mean, you couldn't have said it any better there. Really, the most fitting comparison is Wolves, who came down in virtually exactly the same fashion. You know, if I'm not mistaken, they were relegated in back-to-back seasons. They totally plummeted from from the top, and they were able to take what they were given and they propelled themselves back up. And you know, again, that doesn't, you know, it. it it, it's it's really I, I don't I, I'm honest with you I'm, I know it's not very good for the remit of being podcast host but I am fairly lost for words when I consider just how sort of far apart those two situations are it's it's quite horrendous but I don't remember whether it was you or, or John actually Dave but one of you mentioned their recruitment and about having a rebuild because a rebuild is most certainly on the cards a lot of Sunderland players will be out of contract come well come the summer come from effectively now really a lot of Sunderland players will no longer be Sunderland players because they'll either not be offered a new deal or they'll turn down whatever they are given if indeed they are given anything how much do we trust the current recruitment team to well rebuild again sorry is that for me sorry uh, that's for anyone sorry I should really specify anyone can take that if they want <laughs> don't be shy it almost feels secondary in terms of looking at the squad I, I almost haven't got the stomach to think about recruitment and how we're going to build for next season because I feel like uh, the whole ownership thing needs to be resolved first. Now, that might be almost impossible in the, the world we're in at the moment and that isn't anyone's fault, obviously. Um, so I think it's hard to focus on the things we should be focusing on as football fans around this and a bit of a rally call you, you might, might want from fans. But it feels like there's so much else going on that it's almost, sadly, very much secondary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just just sort of adding on to that, I think you know, um, playing devil's advocate, adding a sort of positive swing. Maybe I know we've said this the last couple of seasons when we've been losing players that have been on big wages because they've come to end a contract, so we've managed to move them on even though we're still paying some of them. You know, maybe this whole kind of clear out agenda or what's happening in the future with with the squad being cleared a little bit. You know, I'm I'm not being realistic when I say this, and I'm fully aware of it. But maybe it's a big opportunity to to bring in some some players if the recruitment goes well. Now, if the recruitment goes well, is another non-realistic perception really based on the past couple of seasons and and the recruitment we've had. And 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 if that if that's the team that are recruiting these players and and that's their that's their doing, and there's you know that laying fault completely with them, you know, I'm sure they'll have lots of excuses as to why and, 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 and why they weren't able to recruit the, the best players for what we're doing or they thought that they were going to be the best players, you know. But ultimately, um, trying to take a more idealistic point of view, um, there's there's going to be a lot of free agents about, you know, from other clubs. Um, and and we talked about it a little bit today in our, in our little groups, um, you know, on, on, on WhatsApp and stuff. And it's a case of, you know, you look at other clubs who've got top, top players falling out of contract because of the situation. And whilst it's a negative situation, it's hard to concentrate on that. The people behind the club, and I'm sure the people behind other clubs, will be looking at how they can mop up those players, how they can get in touch with them now and start turning this into an opportunity and try and get them on, involved into the new season and, and building a squad around certain decent players. Now, if they're not doing that, and if we aren't doing that, kind of tactic 
as harsh as it sounds to sort of be taking advantage of the situation like that, we are going to fall behind again. And and that's the really, really worrying thing. Um, and also kind of if we're not if we're not doing that and kind of all the other teams are, we're still supposedly the biggest draw in League One. Are we going to see players that we're supposedly linked with go into Doncaster, go into to whoever else is still in this league, you know, like, are we going to see them mopping up these players that actually really should be playing at the stage in my life, you know, top top level players for this level, if that makes sense. And I'm sorry, but like, this is the third season of, of that potentially happening. You know, the first season down, we had some excuses with the fact that we just couldn't manage the wage bill to bring in decent players, you know, little, little excuses here and there to bring in decent players. This season... Again, there was the odd excuse from Stuart and the ownership about why we couldn't pay X amount of money. Then out of nowhere, he's chucking four million at Will Grigg. So really now, potentially, quite a lot of the teams and clubs in this league are on an even keel. We're losing a lot of players. They're all out of contract and they're all available. So treating it like an American sports draft, like surely we've got an opportunity here to, if we can recruit properly, we can get a decent team out of this. So Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy, John, an American sports draft. Yeah, with a lot of players going, I think, I think, I mean, I'd imagine a lot of clubs will be in a similar scenario where players will be running down contracts and obviously amid there being something of a, of a drought financially, there'll be a lot of cl- players sort of just like on Bosman's going to and from other clubs in sort of like a in like a sort of like a smashing grab of who can you get but i suppose that's a question for you phil um if if you don't mind would do you um, do you expect that as we currently speak now that this is resolved that the 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 powers that be at sunland are moving however they however they see fit to basically keep players at the squad um move some players on have a look at who they could bring in do you expect that the transfer activity is being planned and meditated now well you certainly hope so wouldn't you yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I think I would, b- before I kind of go, go on to it more generally, what, what I would say is I think all clubs will be looking to make decisions, but I think you probably have to acknowledge as well that a lot of clubs will wait until they know when the new season is going to start before they realistically start adding players to their squads. Because if clubs are going to be potentially looking at playing behind closed doors for three months, then their budget might be a lot smaller. I'm not speaking specifically at Sunderland there. I just mean across the game, I don't think it's quite as easy as teams will now go, right, bang, who are we going to go out and buy? I think they'll be waiting a little bit longer just to see when what next season might look like. But in terms of Sunderland, you know, you would certainly hope that this is an opportunity now to go out and get good players and to rebuild. I think the summer was always going to kind of be a natural turnover because, you know, as we know, the summer that came down from the championship, a lot of players signed two years. But I always kind of looked at the summer and thought, well, you either get promoted and therefore you look at it as you have to kind of have a bit of refresh of the squad to compete in the championship, or you've had two seasons and you feel like go up. So you need to have another go, right? Because clearly what you've had is not working. But, you know, that's where, I guess that's kind of where the concern for the club and a lot of supporters have at the moment is because we're two years on now since the new owners came in. And I don't think many people have a huge amount of faith in the recruitment structures they've put in place. We all know that the academy has had an unbelievably difficult season. A lot of good players have gone from the under-18, under-23 age groups. So you don't really have those players from those age groups knocking on the door. You know, you've got Denver Hume, Linda Guccelli, Emblem, fantastic. But where's where's the next kind of group of those players? And you probably don't have a huge amount of faith from what we've seen in the last three, four windows um, that they could go out and find these gems who will be available on a free from other clubs. Hopefully I'm proved wrong, but that's kind of where the concern is. And ultimately it comes back to the ownership. You know, you mentioned before, to the other guys about where the blame for this season lies. Well, for me, the, the book stops with the owners, and that's particularly the case in this season. You know, you go back to last summer and 
you set a target for 100 points, but then your manager can't sign any players for four to six weeks. He thinks he's getting new owners. And then the new ownership never happens. Um, so he's starting the season with a weaker squad than he had last year, but being told to get 15 more points. I mean, how does that work? Mm-hmm. And it's always felt to me, I mean, I've been doing, you know, I've been following something all my life, but I've been doing this job specifically for about three and a half years now. And it's always felt like Sunderland are just living from window to window. Let's get the next window, see who's available. Um, yep. You know, I've never felt like, okay, this is the structure that Sunderland are trying to follow. And I think it's a, this, to me, the season has just felt like, I suppose the last two seasons in a way, but specifically this season, it's just felt like such a waste because this opportunity to reset, learn the lessons from why we got to this place and have another go. I just don't really see what's there. I don't really see what the recruitment strategy is, you know, what they're trying to achieve. I don't see these academy players, unfortunately, kind of banging on the door aside from the ones who are already there. So, yeah, in a theoretical world, you look at this and think, okay, there's an opportunity here to go out and and recruit well, bring the wage bill down because I'm sure that wages will be a lot lower this summer. But I guess the reason why we're having this discussion and the reason why we're all uncertain about the summer ahead and the months ahead is because, unfortunately, a lot's been talked about and a lot of targets have been set and a lot of promises have been made. But what we have at the moment is is not really great. Sorry. Just to jump just to jump in there, I think, bang on, Bill. When the, the owners first came in, um, there was talk of the Dortmund model and uh, actually there were a few people like Army and others and uh, just saying you would like to have a Dortmund model doesn't mean you have a Dortmund model. It was talked about a lot of fans just felt when you reviewed where were every action, forget what they said, every action they took was one of short termism. Um, there's no long term plan. Um, now, speculate as to why that might be, uh, but that's just look through what they've done. There's nothing that suggests uh, building something. Uh, it's been about cutting costs, which is absolutely fair enough, 100% fair enough to do that. We were in a mess. And uh, I, what anyone wants to say about the owners, I've never envied them taking up the mess that did um, however did um, and feels like we still have problems so if you look at the minutes of, if you're ner- nerdy enough like me um, to either be involved with or to read the minutes of the Red White Army meetings with the club you'll see in the latest I was going to say more recent but it's a while ago now that we've had the structured dialogue meetings um, but uh, back in the last year when we were talking through finances um, we were a matter of record that we were looking still at a a gap uh, of around about £10 million between the operating costs of club uh, and revenue. And uh, we still have some parachute payments coming in then to, to, to that gap as they come in in instalments. Um, but I don't know what the latest situation is, but it is a worry that if that gap hasn't been closed even more significantly, there is still that significant gap in finances. That's, that's probably the greatest challenge of all in terms of building a, a squad that can um, swagger out of the uh, league one next season. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. You see, I, I look at it and I feel like I try to digest what you're both saying, but like I, I, my, my brain just hits this wall of just negativity. I mean, I can't, you know what it is? I'm sat here and I, I'm going to say what I think a lot of people wouldn't want to hear it like a fellow Sunderland fan say just because no one wants to really think along those lines, but I can't even see them going up next season either because mm. I don't understand how they are supposed to turn what they've got here into a club successful enough to get promotion from this division. I mean, ultimately, you, you look at it, first of all, you know, Phil spoke about there, the academy alight. Obviously, that's fallen into what is, I would call, nothing less than disrepair. It is an absolute state. You've got no one coming through. You know, your Denver Hume and your Elliot Embleton and your, your Lyndon Gooch, they are the last of what you can possibly expect to see in a Sunderland shirt next season because, quite frankly, all of the young talent that was coming through, an entire generation of it, has gone. 
add to that the fact that obviously half a team is going to be out of contract. You're then going to have to bring in, you, you know what, let's say two digits worth of players again, 10, 11, 12. And you're going to have to do that with an even smaller budget than you had the first time you did a rebuild in League One. Because obviously, this is our first season without the Premier League money trickling down. So we're now, I would imagine, in a situation where with a thinner wage budget and a thinner transfer budget, if any at all, we are going to need to restock a team with one that can apparently challenge for automatic promotion. With the current recruitment team, with Tony Corton and Richard Hill being the only two, only two people operating, I cannot see that happen, not given the track record that they've had so far. There's no infrastructure, there's no there's no sort of youth progression or youth policy. There isn't anything that resembles, to me, a substantial transfer ethos, let alone the Dortmund model. Mm. So I've got literally no idea how this is supposed to turn around. I would love for one of you to be at least slightly more positive than me. <laughs> so I don't know how much more negative I can get, but that's just how I feel right now. I just think it's such a... I mean, I, I wouldn't I, even say it's a mess. I wouldn't say it's a mess because I think a mess implies that there's nothing there. There is something there. Just what yeah. we are right now is mediocre. We are bang average by League One standards, given how the club is run on a day-to-day basis from its infrastructure. I just think it's really mediocre. Not a mess. We've been upgraded from mess to mediocre. <laughs> The one positive is that we'll not be allowed to go and watch it for a while. Yeah, that's it. I can pretend. You know, it's, it's like the thing, isn't it? It's like Schrodinger's stadium. If I'm not there, the football's not happening. Yes, very true. Um, no, I mean, just touching on it all, what you just, what you guys just said, I'm not going to be positive. I don't think there's anything to be positive about. But the Dortmund model or lessons to be learned, like what more is there to be learned and what more is there? What You've had enough time to put in a structure in a model, like in my opinion, like I know there's been, you know, this sort of plan of selling and what have you. But um, for me, when they, when they first took over, we were in the league, we're in league one, surely, 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 surely. And we, we know now this didn't happen, but surely if you did that, you go, right, Wolves did it. Number of other teams have done it quite recently where they've dropped down a couple of leagues, or they've dropped down to League One. How did they get back up so quickly? What did they do to make that happen? And you just try and implement that. Forget your Dortmund model, forget taking time to learn the league and learn lessons of how we can do this a different way because of our wage bill, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You just try and implement as much as possible. Frankly, what's happened is Stuart's come in. He's brought in Richard Hill, who he knows from previous roles and previous, uh, you know, lower leagues kind of roles. And he's and he's he's tried to they've tried to balance the books, which again, you know, like Dave said, I echo what he said. I don't envy them at all. They've had a big job on the hand, and they've probably done a pretty good job at that. But uh, like Dave said, there's probably a lot to be um, a lot we don't know about what they've done within the within the structures, the revenues of the club. But what they haven't done is found that um, that winning that winning structure, that model that works, you know, and we, we, we've talked about Wolves, talked about other teams, you know, it's, it's, a, it sounds stupid, but it's as simple as that to try that. Instead, mm-hmm. we've, we've seen something completely different. We've seen rash decisions. We've seen um, arguments and ups and downs and changes of um, facts that are supposedly facts, you know, change, changing their mind, what they actually said. And, and, and it's just, it's frankly, like just to add to the despair, it's just, I'm pretty sure every Sunderland fan's had enough of the sort of drama that's surrounded it all um, and does just want to get back to it, you know, um, as as kind of normal as normality can be. But how that's going to happen and, 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 and what that means for the third season in League One, I don't know, because I've got to, I've got to echo what you said, Alex. I, I, 
I want to say that we'll we'll be all right, but I don't think we'll get promoted this season. <laughs> I don't no. think I, d- I don't think the the bookies are going to be able to pick um, uh, favourites from any league this season with what's gone on right now with with cor- coronavirus hitting all the clubs, you know. So well, we went officially forty eight minutes without mentioning the coronavirus. That's pretty good. <laughs> well done, John. Thanks. But yeah, I mean, I mean, John, do you have any faith in the recruitment team to get it right next season? Just no. Honest, just no. Okay, no. fair enough. I don't. I, to be to be fair, the only faith I'd have is if as if they were a bit probably a bit more transparent. And I know that's a bit unheard of, but you know how Stuart talks about his transparency before he went black. You know, before he went sort of dark and didn't want to talk to yeah. us anymore. If they're gonna have the pelters they've had for two seasons now of poor signings, why not just come out and talk? Why not have Richard Hill or Tony come out and chat about their recruitment strategy and why they've bought the players they've bought? What is the plans for the youth structures? You know, get get uh, Paul Reed back on if he's still hanging around, you know, and stuff like that. And just just have a bit of transparency. It felt like, I know it was a while ago, but it felt like that pod where Charlie and Paul were on. Charlie was just stopping him from saying what he really wanted to say, Paul Reed, about the academy. And it was just a, a case of, you know, this isn't this isn't transparency. This isn't what we want to hear. I think maybe not everybody, but I think some Sunderland fans at least would appreciate the reasons why things have happened and the explanations of, of why this business is being run this way. Because let's be honest, they're running it like a business. You know, um, they're not thinking of fans ever really, despite the fact that they're saying it. They're not thinking about what the fans want. They're not thinking about how to succeed on the pitch. They're thinking about how to run the club far too much, in my opinion. And 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 obviously, you know, there'll be lots of people out there who will add to what I've said there and say that they're really only thinking about flipping the club. They're only really thinking about how they can make a profit on the club. Now, I'm not sure I'd stick my name on that because I don't know the ins and outs, but if people are going to give me a, a decent argument for that, then I'll stick with it. But Personally speaking, um, all I want to know is the decisions why, the transparency behind it all. But as far as your question goes, absolutely not. Zero faith. How can you have faith in a recruitment team that have done that over the last couple of years? You know, at all. Yeah, and I think to reiterate again, they're going to have the same task as they did in the first season in League One, but with less money than they had that time. So I just... You know, again, I mean, I look at the recruitment. I look, I look at the the players that were recruited. I mean, you know, rightly or wrongly, on a moral standpoint, the documentary um, "Something Till I Die" sort of cast a lot of light on the the mentality of those players that were signed. You know, you look at Baldwin, for example. Mm. You you look at Charlie White. You look at the the nature of those signings. You know, nine hundred k on Charlie White with his fifteen goals for Bradford in League Two. You look mm. at Jack Baldwin, who just looked like the the battle was lost from day one. You know, he just looked terrified to have to have signed for Sunderland. You know, I, 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 my my fear is that we're going to make the same mistakes, but on a budget, which means that we sign even worse players. Mm. I think the, that, the what we, we we speak about due diligence with with regards to running clubs, and I don't think the recruitment team do their do their due diligence on players. You, know, you talked about a couple of signings there. Can you honestly think that anyone with half a brain would sign Jack Baldwin? Nice bloke, but if you meet him, sit down with him, learn more about him, find out what what makes him tick, find out all the kind of ins and outs of it all, speak to previous owners, speak to previous coaches get the proper detail, not just stats on a bit of paper or not just mm-hmm. somebody saying, oh, yeah, he's an half-decent player, a mate of a mate, or going to watch him a couple of times. You know, get a full dossier. If you do full due diligence on players, then fair play. The decisions have been made from the proper science behind it. And that's where you're lacking in a recruitment team. You know, I can't see where any of the players they've brought in 
maybe one or two here and there where they've actually done the due diligence, unless they've just got really lucky. You know, they've just genuinely got really lucky once or twice. Maybe Luke and I, I don't know, you know, they've just got lucky with the player. But point, I, Just one thing I want to add is we talk about recruitment team and we say they, you know, that implies a large number of people involved in the decision-making <laughs> process. And we know for a fact that in the first season, League One, that wasn't the case. I'm not being kind of funny there or th- that's just a factor. And, you know, the investment we know was in those scouting networks and the recruitment team just wasn't there. I mean, I think the situation's slightly improved now, but that's what, it, that, you know, that's what these things comes down to. And, and, and that's where I think the concerns are going forward and, and, and the things that, that, that really have to be addressed. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a very, that's a very pertinent point there, Phil. I mean, if we look at the infrastructure of the club, is there any way, I think, I suppose, I suppose, um, uh, Phil, we'll go back to you. What, what is it that the club lacks as far as infrastructure goes, that prevents it from being a club that gets promoted? Well, I, ju- I just think that, I think we all understand that the, the owners inherited a situation where they had to cut costs and save money. And I can understand that. But in the long term, you have to invest to a degree as well to get returns. You know, investing in players who you can potentially sell on down the line, investing in your academy team so you have players in one year, two years, you can either sell to clubs below you or can push into your team. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, so, you know, we mentioned the sun until I die. I mean, I think that showed to everybody that there isn't a particularly great decision-making structure in place. You know, we've seen decisions made from different places, um, you know, managers finding out about decisions after they've been made in terms of transfers, what have you. I don't think there's anything malicious in that. I just don't think the, the structures are in place to make good, efficient decisions. And I'm not sure that the structures have been in place in some key departments where you can make really good long-term strategies you know, to me, when I when I first started doing this job and having kind of followed the team in the previous years, it always felt like Sunderland were, were just hoping to get lucky. Or yeah. at, some, at some point, we'll stumble across the manager who's the messiah mm-hmm. and we'll, you know, we'll go on a run and at some point we'll have a window where we get the right players in. And I suppose there have been some things that have kind of made made us hope that that might be possible, such as Big Sam, you know, in that January window where he did get the players in. But I just think, and one of my biggest disappointments is that even having come down to League One and even having seen what that meant going down that route in the Premier League, those lessons don't really seem to learn. As To me, this has been a club that has still looked like it's just hoping to get lucky, that it somehow has a window that massively pays off and someone mm-hmm. comes in and scores 15, 20 goals. I just don't think football works like that. I think you have to, you know, you need stability at boardroom level and you need people you know, on Sunderland day-to-day whose job, you know, kind of full-time and full focus is on making these decisions so that you can make proper proper long-term decisions to the benefit of the club. Um, well, you know what, Phil, it's, sorry, I don't mean, but it's very funny. A lot of what you said there sounds an awful lot like the same short-termism you were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Then that, that, That's what I mean. I just, um, you know, I, I think everyone understands that Sunderland cannot spend absolute fortunes in League One and they can't have a you know worldwide network of 50 scouts. I think everyone understands that just that just isn't feasible. But surely you shouldn't be in a position where you know your rivals seem to have, for example, better connections with the big Premier League clubs so they get the pick of the loan players. You know, we've seen in you know some Sunderland's competitors bringing in excellent young loan players from Premier League clubs. Sunderland don't seem to have been able to do that. There have been some successes in recruitment. You know, Jordan Willis picked up on a free Mm-hmm. Young, superb defender who, if someone wanted to tomorrow, they could sell him for a big profit. Um, but I think the fact that that's the exception rather than the rule tells you where they're going wrong because there hasn't been enough of that. And if there hasn't been enough of that, then I just don't think it's because those those structures are in place. And I do think what that documentary showed us is what something a lot of us argued for a long time was that there just wasn't enough day to day leadership and that kind of structure of, of leadership 
wasn't there. We hope that when Jim Rodwell is able to come to Sunderland, you know, that might help a little bit and be there every day and liaise with people. We wait and see. It's kind of too early to tell, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's something that's just been lacking. And, and again, you know, my overarching feeling now is kind of frustration that I feel this opportunity for the club to reset a little bit over the last two years is, for me, it's been wasted. And, and I think that's a real shame. It still feels to me like a club that, you know, isn't necessarily set up for success and is hoping that at some point it kind of gets lucky. And as we've seen from the last 10 years, maybe it'll happen for a short period of some time, but I don't think it's sustainable. Yeah, Sunderland don't get lucky. Sunderland getting lucky is Victor be on a free scoring three goals in his first two games. That's the extent to which Sunderland get lucky. Sunderland don't get lucky. So I suppose one final question for today, and I do have to, I'm afraid, end on probably the sourest of the sour notes because that is the that is the general feel of this podcast, and that's that's going to sit with the owners. Have has Donald and Co lost the confidence of the fan base entirely? We'll ask you, Dave. Do you think that that is the case? Do you think there are people in the fan base who will who will still back them, or do you think it's generally the case that the fans don't feel that they have any faith left in the hierarchy? Um, well, I can only go by uh, the emails we receive. Benway Army uh, members uh, taking the temperature on social media, which can be a dangerous thing to do because you can end up in echo chamber. So you've got to be aware of that. However, I have never known the fans to be so united. Um, uh, disappointment and frustration at how that's been handled. And obviously, it's come on the back of um, the, the leaked draft accounts story. But Sunderland have made the move that they did, especially in the initial uh, first statement or two. Uh, just was, well, first of all, it was just baffling. A lot of fans have been telling us about the tone was unusual. It, it just again, just going off feedback that we've had, it, that some would suggest it was almost like passive aggressive in its nature, and then the actual content itself. And you don't have to look very far to see, dare I say, what good looks like in the clubs. The you look at Derby, Leeds, uh, Portsmouth, and how they've communicated what they're doing about renewals and refunds, um, and how they've actually written to the season ticket holders as well and contact directly, um, which just, none of, none of that's happened. And it's really just really sad. And it also feels like it's indicative of a lack of appetite from the ownership now. But that's just all from the feedback that we've had. That's what that's what fans are telling us. And uh, you'll have all seen yourselves looking at social media and what we've read sort of the press and fans are seeing with the feet a little bit as well. There's a lot saying that they're cancelling. I think it's great that the club have um, kept it open that you retain your seat, loyal points. That's 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 really good. It's great that they've made the U-turn on the refund uh, for those that had already purchased next season's uh, tickets, but also for those that who had been playing behind closed doors uh, would have still been eligible for refunds. So that that's good. But um, I think they'd already they'd already shown the hand, and I think a lot of fans are forgiven on that. You know, I, I don't. There's one thing I never want to do as a Sunderland fan. I, I never want to be against the people who are in charge of the club. I never want that. And I, I never want to dislike a manager. I never want to dislike players. And I, I never want to dislike owners. And, you know, I don't dislike them. I, I know it's not personal. Well, it is, but it isn't, I suppose, if that makes any sense. It's, I, I don't feel any confidence or any faith in them at all. No, I, I, I don't. I think everything that they've done has been done wrong, especially in recent times. I think every decision that's been made has ultimately culminated in what is complete abject failure at this moment in time. And because of that, I, I just, I just, I don't see any real positivity in the near future. I don't, I'd love to be proven wrong. And, you know, I'm wrong quite a lot in other avenues of life. So if I'm wrong in this one, fantastic. Cannot wait. But I suppose we'll leave that there for a day. So one final question, lads. 
shall we just aim for 100 points next season for a laugh? <laughs> let's do the Invincibles. Let's let's see if we can do an Arsenal Invincibles and just win every game. Or yeah, yeah, the League One Arsenal, that's going to be us. I'm not uh, sure about that. Well, no, maybe not. Anyway, well, thank you very much for listening to the Rogue Report podcast. I've been your host, Alex McCain, and thank you, Dave, from Red and White Army for joining us. You're welcome. Enjoyed it. Thanks for asking me on. No, you're very welcome. Thank you, Phil from the Echo. Thanks. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problemo. And thank you, John, also from the Roger Report. Thank you very much, Alex. No problemo. So, yeah, hopefully, in spite of all the negativity we've had, things do pick up in the future. And as soon as there is something positive to shout about, you can bet that we will be jumping on our mics wherever we may be to inject some positivity to counterbalance the negativity. Let's try, eh? Thank you very much and good night. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.